Good everybody. So that was a fun last pod talking about film scoring and some of the techniques. And I, I wanted to kind of dig into some of that and also kind of put a cap on this little like music theory segment that I've been doing on these solo pods. So today let's talk about orchestration. Let's talk about things, those vocab words like ostinato and euro rack and modular synth. Let's dig into that a little bit and uh, hopefully leave you for something to listen for as you're checking out other music or watching a movie. So to start, let's talk about orchestration. So the concepts of voice leading and polyphony and counterpoint, all of those are related to different instruments talking to each other, conversing. That's really what I like to think about with orchestration is you have different instruments that have different strengths and different weaknesses. And by leveraging those, you can create a fuller, richer sound. And by inverting them, you can break expected parameters, like a guitar solo that is down at the very bottom of the neck, the lowest notes. That's very interesting, very cool. A bass guitar solo that's all the way up very, very high, like some of the stuff that Bubby does. Interesting, different. It's one of the quote-unquote weaknesses of the instrument, but you're exploiting it. A, um, an overblown saxophone, something that is reaching way, way higher than it's technically supposed to, or growling low notes. Taking something and pushing it out of its range. But in order to do something like that, you have to understand the range. And so that, that's the reason why you know people that are classical music composers they play everything, at least a little bit. You know, that, that was one of the cool things talking about um, cello. You know, it's like you don't necessarily have to be the world's best cello player to write for cello. But it sure as hell helps to be able to play a little bit of cello to write for cello. You know what I mean? And so when Adam was talking about playing cello, it got me thinking like, yeah, that's that's kind of both like new school and old school at the same time. Where, you know, he doesn't want to use a sample library, so he learns it himself. And, you know, people didn't used to have sample libraries, so they'd have to learn it themselves or hire somebody. And the sweet spot is doing a little bit of both. You know, playing some stuff, understanding it so you can write for it, and then hiring somebody that can take it to the next level if you have the budget. And if you don't, do it yourself. That's that's kind of what I'm playing with with drums right now. I have a lot of drum ideas and feel ideas in my head and in my hands because I play guitar and I play bass. And bass is like the most drum-esque instrument that there is. It was was funny with Bubby. He was talking about how, you know, he wanted to start with drums and he sucked at drums, so he played bass. I've heard that story from bass players so many times where it's like you, you turn to that instrument because you really want to play drums, but this one makes sense to you and then you fall in love with it. Similar story for me, really. Um, but anyway, what I'm, what I'm saying is like, if I want to write for drums and I want to talk to a drummer, it's a lot better if I can play it a little bit. 
even imperfectly, so that I could say like something like this, and I can put it in the vocabulary that he understands or she understands. It's like transmitting knowledge is so much easier when you speak a little bit of that language. And that's where orchestration really comes in and all that voice leading and the polyphony and stuff is like, really what that is, is it's, I, I, I don't want players to be bored. I want to push them and I want to understand their comfort zones so that I can push them, but also give them stuff that's like sweet in their pocket. So with polyphony, the idea is like, I want to have a moving, fun bass part for the bass player to play. I want the bass player to be spreading joy. Even if it's simple, you know, that doesn't really matter. But if the way that it's working with the rest of the arrangement, like even if it is four notes, just, or one note, the placement should be interesting or the way that it plays against the melody should be interesting rather than just phoning it in or being simple for simple's sake. There's really, I I kind of feel that there's no such thing as simple in good music. It just appears so. There's effortless. Because simplicity implies that there's not a lot going on. And even something like under pressure, that bass line, doom, 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 doom. That's not simple. The where it falls in the phrase, the way that it's played, the tone of the instrument, you know, as it evolves over time, it is, yes, it's repetitious. It is somewhat an ostinato, a repeated rhythmic and melodic phrase that stays the same as harmony tech usually changes around it and evolves around it. Um, that heartbeat is not simple in the sense that it's lacking complexity. It is effortless and it is not overly complex. It's that sweet spot. And that's what you're trying to find. And that's where like the orchestration stuff, like voice leading, where like I want my guitar to pick these two notes instead of 12 notes. <laughs> no, I can't really play 12 notes, but you know what I mean. Like, like I, I want it to be a dyad instead of a triad or instead of a chordal chord, like four notes, three notes, two notes. I want to make that decision. And I want to pick where that one note goes and the other note goes, not just because of shapes, but because that's where I want the notes to go. And sometimes the answer is shapes. Like, for example, have you seen bar chords, guitarists just kind of swinging their uh, hands up and down the neck without really moving their um, hands? It's like a shape that they just transmit over to one side or like a capo. If you've seen that kind of plugged onto a guitar neck, that allows you to take the shapes that you play down there and play it up higher. Nothing wrong with it. It's really cool. You can get some awesome effects out of it. Um, but also, it's good not to have that be the only thing you can do because then you can be really, really specific of, I don't just play shapes. I play chords and notes and relationships. And I play the thing that I hear in my head rather than the only thing I know how to do. And also, like, you know when to not play. Like, you know when to play a big old full chord and when to play a little tiny baby chord depending on what everybody else is doing and what the rest of the arrangement is. And when you're making your own stuff or you're composing like for a film, you got to think of the whole thing all at once. And that's the trick. And that, that's why you zoom in so that you can zoom out. Like I understand, I have to practice all these little tiny things on guitar and like understand all this music theory crap so that when I zoom out, I don't have to think about it anymore. That's the value of it is it's not really like prescriptive. Like, oh, you learned this music theory and now you can do a fugue. It's like, well, kind of. You can work inside of the textbook style of fugue, but the stuff that Bach was doing in that little fugue that I was showing you, it's, it's innovative, cool stuff, and it's evocative. It makes me feel something. Um, that's not just textbook stuff. 
even though Bach is the textbook, there's a reason why, because he's actually good. Like he's actually making you moved. And I want to apply that to everything I do, pop music or otherwise, film, you know, film score, whatever. And I thought it was funny talking to them about how the, they like focus on, I think Sean was talking about like neoclassical. And that, that's funny because that term has had like a million different meanings. I try not to talk about talk too much when I'm uh, doing a, a podcast, especially when, with two other guests, because then it's kind of like it's not really about me here. Um, but it's fun to like reflect on it because like I want them to talk and I want them to open up and tell their story. Um, but neoclassical is like mean a million different things over time in the same way that there's like these different neos, you know, neoplatonism, neo-confucianism. And they're fun because they're dichotomies. They're like these contradictions in term where it's, we're looking back and forward at the same time. And it's like, how can you do that? It's like we are. And that's, that's cool. And I think, I think at the, at the heart of it, when he was explaining it saying, you know, it's the co- combination of ambient and ethereal with acoustic classical underpinnings. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. It makes sense why that works for film music because there is a evocative nature of like a piano sonata or a concerto or small orchestral music um, where you can feel like you're in the room with these musicians. And then you sprinkle on top things like modular synthesizers, which we didn't really cover what even that is. But basically a modular synthesizer is a set of a bunch of different things that all modularized, so like little components, a little module, that then you route together in a variety of different ways. And the beauty of it being modular is that you can say, I want to put A into B, or no, actually I want to put A into C today, or C into B. And each of these things can be different stuff. Filters, um, oscillators. Oscillators are the things that make the tones. Oscillator. There are different types of waves that the oscillator creates. And they oscillate between tones. So you can have an LFO that um, changes the way that that frequency is uh, expressed. So like if you wanted it to go or like that kind of thing, that uh, that you can use the LFO to, to affect the pitch. Or you could use the LFO to affect the filter, like like dubstep, wop, 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 that stuff. LFOs on filters. You, you know, you can use LFOs on anything, which is very cool. And I do often. Um, but that that cool like element of modularized synthesizers, physical synthesizers, uh, on top of very potently recorded things like a cello or upright piano, um, I get why they're getting work and they, they make beautiful stuff, but it's that, it's that care and that ability to listen and think polyphonically that I think separates out the musicians and composers that go by the book and the ones that have like eaten the book, that have fully absorbed it and uh, left it behind. But you kind of have to, in order to unlock the deepest potential within you, I believe that you require some exposure to these tools to go all the way. It's like there are some people that are born athletic, and then there are others that are born athletic and then they do all the training. Then there are others still that are obsessive about everything. That third category, 
those are the LeBrons, the Michael Jordans, the Kobe Bryants. Those people, the Beethovens, the box, you know, it's uh, it's it like like I, you know, if you watch Paul McCartney, even like old man Paul McCartney, like doing his thing, you can just tell that he's not he's not thinking about what he's doing, but he's clearly done it all. And I I know that that feels like a bad example because it's like oh he didn't go to music school or whatever. It, you don't really have to go to music school, but you need exposure to interesting things and then you need to fill in the gaps with the people around you like Prince you know like we were talking about that with Bubby there are these people that absorb music on a very very high level and they interact with it every day and that's the class of like people that I want I endeavor to be like that I don't think I'm there but the if I don't endeavor to be there I'll never be there so what do I need to do to get there it's like I probably like I need to lift more weights because I wasn't born like like LeBron. You know what I mean? <laughs> like that's not gonna happen. But I have a certain amount of musical talent that if I lift enough musical weights, I might be able to might be able to at least get close. And so that that's the reason why I study all this stuff and that's the reason why we talk about it. Because I don't presuppose that everybody listening to this podcast has, you know, insane chops or is a child prodigy. And the funny thing is, is that like Bubby, you know, he's, he's basically was a child prodigy, but he just kept working and that's what you get. You get somebody like him. And it was fun talking to him about how he's like, I don't do anything crazy with my practice except for just do it all the time. And he's also does this open radar for music and he brings the right spirit. Those are the things that I, I love learning through osmosis in addition to the music school stuff um, that I, I think you need in order to arrange for a bunch of instruments. If you got one like more narrow lane, I don't know if you need it quite as badly, but the narrow lanes don't really exist in music anymore. And I think that, you know, Adam and Sean were living proof of that. Uh, the people, the people that stay too linear and too narrow banded, I think get bitter because it's not, the world is changing and it's kind of like in some ways I get why it sucks because like, yeah, I'd want to make more money. I still produce in my, my bedroom and the stuff that they were talking about, about having to, you know, turn off the AC every time you record is so real because it's literally happening right now. And I'm regretting wearing a shirt uh, to this podcast because uh, whew, <laughs> that's part of the reason why I don't put, do these solo podcasts with a video on because it's super hot in here. I probably don't look very good because I'm sweating. But that's, uh, that's the reality, and I don't, I mean, what am I going to do about it? I just got to work through it. And in order to work through it, I have to have a good mental positive outlook because people that don't have a good mental positive outlook, they don't keep working. They quit or they sandbag themselves. They, they feed in to the negativity and the, that paralyzes them. I know because I've done it, you know? <laughs> That's part of the reason why I try to bring a positive attitude to what I do and to what I make and a mind of curiosity and no like blinders and no roadblocks, at least as much as I possibly can. I'm trying uh, to where I, I don't want to look at something like counterpoint and say that's scary classical stuff or that's not needed because I'm a pop musician and pop musicians don't even read music. But I would argue that the people that are pointed to you know, like the Beatles, they don't read music. They achieve it in spite of that, not because of that. It's like 
Do you think Babe Ruth Ruth would have been a better baseball player if he like ate healthier? It's like, come on, of course. I mean, I even think the same thing about Kobe. Like he was a, uh, he was talking about double cheeseburgers before every game and all this kind of stuff. What if he took his body more seriously from a younger age? I, I mean, this stuff you can overcome and you can achieve, especially, you know, you have a certain amount of talent that can outpace the other things. And then maybe you have a hit song, you get a certain amount of luck and then the other things don't matter. But like, a, I don't know, I've seen some musicians that have gone out there and play like legacy acts and they play their hit song and there's a reason why people came to see them, but they only have like one or two hit songs and they're just not good at music like they just don't have a lot to offer like the band is doing their thing but they're just kind of there they're like they sing their hit song and they're just kind of there and I, I looked at it you know I'm 15 or 16 watching some of these um acts there's one that's like really sticking out in my head but I don't want to throw shade uh and it was like why didn't you practice why didn't they keep getting better because they're you know 50 or mid 50s or whatever you know back then so it's like what were you doing all that time? Just riding the luck. I like, let's refuse that. Keep practicing. I want to be better at 50 than I am right now. And even if I'm like less creative, maybe this is my creative peak or near, near to it. I don't, I reject that notion because of Beethoven and Bach and all these people. Like there's proof people have done it just because it doesn't happen very often in pop music doesn't mean it can't be done. I think part of it is just people get complacent, they get rich, or they burn out, or they get sad. And the path through it is to keep the excitement. And talking to these people, that's exciting. And so I get hyped. I'm like, okay, yeah, I like the idea of more ostinatos in my music. And so like using arpeggiators and stuff, I do that a lot. Um, but like uh, maybe there's a new way that I could do that that could be really fun or create like a different center, center for my rhythmic groove. Or maybe there's something I could do in the future with like indie film scoring. That would be cool, especially in the context of what they were saying, because I've done the commercial stuff that they were kind of bashing on a little bit. And yeah, that's hard. That's hard. That's like that's hard for me to envision myself doing a ton of like especially spec work. But if somebody comes to you and says, I want you to make this movie, it's like what a special thing that would be. Even if it's hard, even if it doesn't end up being exactly what you want, I liked the energy that they were bringing about that, and it was a very compelling, fun, fun way of thinking. And I'm not thinking that I can just swoop in and do that, but I am thinking that, like, what do I need to do right now to prepare myself that if that, you know, becomes part of my path, like Danny Elfman style, that I'd be ready? And it's probably learning cello. <laughs> um, I don't know, maybe. I, I, I still got to learn saxophone. Uh, anyway, so that's a long-winded kind of way of saying I think music theory is really cool, but it's a th it's like it's like learning grammar. You're gonna be a better like English writer or whatever if you understand the grammar, um, and then also understand the slang and understand the rhythm of it. All that kind of stuff goes into music, and it's not prescriptive. It's not like I learn the rules now; I follow the rules. It's instead, is like you learn the rules, you practice the rules, you forget the rules, and now they're part of you. And then you can push off of them knowingly. And I think that's where I'm, where I'm trying to head. 
And I know that I'll do it in my own way. You know, I'm not a jazz musician. I'm not a classical musician. I'm a pop musician. But I've studied a lot of jazz and classical and like some of it's in me. But to go to that next tier, I think the only path is just to do, to make, to create, to experiment, and to keep good energy about it. Because those with energy can change the world. Those without cannot. If you enjoyed this podcast, I invite you to please subscribe to the pod and uh, throw a five-star on it. That would be much, much appreciated. It helps the algorithm and whatnot get it out to the people. And hopefully this will inspire some people to love music more. That's the whole whole point. It's kind of becoming my life's mission statement, um, which is a nice thing to have. I'm, I'm starting to run things by that when I'm making decisions. You know, is this is this decision in service of making more music makers and lovers? Yes or no? And hopefully you can take a little bit of into your life as well. You can check out my music at scubertdubert.pizza. And, you know, stay tuned for the next, in like 15, 20 years when I write my piano concerto. Because <laughs> the seed was planted today. It's going to take a long time for that to germinate. And uh, I'll see you again next week.